Okay, hey everybody. Hey, I'm Dave. I'm a solutions architect at, uh, at AWS. And this is um, SRV 318, which is a session about research at uh, the PNL, which is the Pacific Northwest National Lab. Um, I got Mike and Ralph here who are going to talk about some, some of the stuff that they've been building and working on. One of the best parts about being an SA is being able to talk with customers and learn about the things that they're building. And uh, I think this is a really great presentation about some real world examples of how people are solving problems using AWS. So without any other delay, let me turn it over to, uh, to Mike and Ralph here. I'll tell you about what they're doing. All right. Thanks, Dave. <clears throat> so thanks. So um, my name is Mike Garnelli. This is Ralph Perko. Uh, Ralph and I are both uh, software engineers at PNNL, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, as Dave said. Uh, and Ralph and I both joined the lab about seven years ago. Uh, and our pr primary focus or emphasis there, uh, the jobs that we do, I guess, uh, is leading development efforts, driving capabilities, uh, and then pushing for the adoption of new and emerging technologies, all in support of the government customers that we support. Uh, what we're going to talk to you about today is how we leverage that skill set along with our talented researchers to actually um, push or enable research at the lab so that we can try to accommodate all the missions and problems, uh, again, for the customers that we support. So a little bit about the lab system. Uh, so I don't know how much any of you know about DOE labs, uh, Department of Energy labs, uh, but PNL is one of 17 DOE labs uh, that serves the US for a little over six decades now. Uh, and what the labs take on is they take on large-scale, long-term R&D efforts uh, that are typically beyond the scope of academia and private industry. Uh, and that's why they were created. They were created to actually complement the roles of academia and industry. And so a lot of the research that gets done at the lab or at the labs is, uh, requires equipment and instrumentation that is typically beyond what academia can acquire and then beyond the risk tolerance for corporate industry or corporate research labs. Uh, so a little bit about PNL itself. So our main campus is in Richland, Washington. It's really close to the Hanford side, if you're familiar with that. Uh, and then we have other satellite offices in other locations. So we have an office in Seattle. We have an office in Squim, and then we have an office in Portland. Uh, and then we have some folks out in the DC area as well. Uh, and then th these stats are old, but we just kind of wanted to give you an idea about uh, a little bit about the lab itself. So we had, in 2016, we had about a billion dollars in R&D expenditures. Uh, we had a little over 1,000 publications, uh, various patents and wards. Uh, and then we have roughly about 4,400 staff, most of which are engineers and scientists. But then we also have other non-technical staff that are also part of the process there. Uh, and so a little bit about software engineering at, at PNNL. So, I mean, first and foremost, we're a research lab. That's, of course, where most of our emphasis is. Uh, most of the staff are focused on research and innovation, but not typically operational systems. Uh, and our software engineers then really come in and help complement that. We, we try to help enable and drive uh, the research capabilities. One of the challenges that we faced often at the lab is access to resources. Uh, and when I say resources, I mean physical infrastructure, so physical hardware. Uh, virtual environments, staff. Uh, and when I say staff, I mean people that have the skill sets needed to really augment and supplement and help us configure and enable uh, those physical environments. And that's where um, AWS has been a huge uh, game changer for us. Uh, it's really made a big difference for us in our ability to focus on the research and mission problems uh, instead of getting frustrated with actually trying to acquire the, the physical hardware or infrastructure we need to support this mission space. Uh, and then in addition to that, in particular, software engineering um, it also has really helped with a lot of our software practices and processes. So where we can, we try to follow agile-like processes, and it really has helped with that. 
So in addition to the, the environments that we need, one of the other challenges that we face is oftentimes our researchers work in isolation or independently. And what I mean by that is they work independent of the software engineers, the DevOps folks, the minimal amount of DevOps folks that we have, uh, and other technical staff that can really help augment the, the capabilities and skill sets that they need. Uh, and that, is, that makes sense because they, their, their primary focus is the innovation and novel concepts. It's not trying to build deployable applied solutions. Um, and in a lot of times then, if there is something that has the potential to be deployed, meaning like uh, it's, a, it's a capability that one of our collaborators wants or one of our government sponsors wants, the timeframes or the timelines that it takes to get it there is, is a challenge. And oftentimes it's a bit of a frustration for both parties, both researchers and, engin and engineers. Uh, and then of course, sometimes, unfortunately, that also then leads to products or capabilities that really isn't what the customer wanted. And when I say customer, I mean like our government customers. So what are we doing about it, or what are we trying to do in addition to leveraging AWS? Uh, so we are trying to improve the collaboration. Our primary solution now is to try to improve that part of it. So of course, leverage AWS where we can for the environment parts, uh, but then work more closely or up front with the researchers so we can kind of build this relationship, uh, a partnership between our researchers and engineers. Uh, and that's really what our software engineers are trying to do now, is to be more engaged and up front with the researchers so that they can actually focus on their missions and their problem spaces. And if needed, then we can jump in, our software engineer teams can jump in and help them create or build deployable solutions. Uh, and that, again, is where AWS has really made a big difference for us. This really has been a turning point where both sides of that, both our research and engineers, can then leverage the environment and the platforms to focus on the problems. Uh, and it really has dramatically improved our collaboration. And then it's really helped facilitate, again, some of the processing that we want or um, the, the methods that we take in building the solutions so that we have more control over the timeframes, our estimates for those timeframes, and then even potentially the transitions that we might have. So a, a little bit about, we want to talk a little bit about moving to the cloud and some of the steps that we took there, some of the concerns and frustrations we had, and then kind of where we are today. So as I mentioned, we, a lot of the reasons that we made the aggressive push to the cloud is we were just simply getting frustrated with uh, how long it was taking for us to do things, uh, our access to resources. I mean, literally, in some cases, it would take us weeks to get a virtual machine, um, which was really frustrating when we were just trying to do some basic vetting uh, and experimentation of, of some of the concepts. Uh, and then, of course, it, it, one of the other drivers was, of course, then the timeframes or the timelines that we had or that we wanted to have so that we could provide our customers with better estimates of how long things would take. Uh, some of the upfront concerns we had is probably similar to others is we were unaware of some of the costing or how the costing would work uh, or what types of costs we would incur by using that environment. Uh, and then the other part was vendor lock-in. So we, we were getting a lot of, um, I don't know if I'd say pushback, but it was also concerns from those that we work with and support, so like our management teams and even the sponsors we work with, uh, in terms of, well, what if we want to transition it back to the physical environment? What if we want to transition it to our environment? Um, are you going to be locked into the services and capabilities that you're building on top of within the AWS cloud environment? So our initial approach was just a forklift approach, if you will. We basically took what we had solution-wise or capability-wise and just pushed it out into the cloud. Uh, it really seemed like the, the, most sa the safest approach for us uh, with the minimal, minimal amount of risk. Uh, but what that led to, though, is it led to us really missing out on a lot of the reason that you go to the cloud, which is the services and other offerings that it has. Uh, in addition to that, we really didn't 
we really didn't eliminate a lot of the operational pains and headaches that we had. It, it eliminated a lot of the uptime and reliability concerns and issues that we had with our own physical environments, uh, but it didn't eliminate a lot of the day-to-day -day operational headaches that we were encountering. So since then, so what we've done is we really have kind of shifted our focus to a cloud-first approach where we can. Uh, of course, utilizing wherever possible serverless uh, components or serverless uh, technologies that are available out in AWS. Uh, and then in partnership with some of the other folks at the, at the lab, one of our folks, our cloud strategist, David, that's here, um, we, we've tried to improve the education and knowledge and understanding of cloud environments. That's been one of our challenges is a lot of the folks that we work with just simply not knowing what it is, uh, what concerns there are with it, what the risks are, those kinds of things. And so we really tried to uh, improve people's understanding of where and how we use it. Uh, and then all, that's internal to PNNL, but then also uh, do the same with our government customers. So uh, what Ralph and I wanted to do is we wanted to actually walk through a use case where we feel like we tried to take a cloud-first strategy. We re really wanted to try to put collaboration with our researchers up at the forefront uh, and identify um, some of the ways or the, the steps that we took to get there. And so this use case is uh, it's an image classification pipeline that we built uh, in conjunction with our researchers. And the, the primary goal for this use case was a few things. So our researchers really wanted to have a platform or environment where they could quickly evaluate, assess, analyze, augment, change uh, these image classification models that they'd built. Uh, one of the challenges that they often face is that as they step through this process, as I kind of identified, there's a lot of things in their way to be able to do that. Um, part of it is, of course, the physical environments, and then the other part of it is the collaboration and interactions that they want to have with others as part of this effort. The other part to this is that um, if we could actually get something established and built and demonstrable to, of course, the researchers themselves, but also others that maybe have interest in this pipeline, our government customers wanted us to be able to transition it into their environment. And so we were very cognizant of that as well, what limitations and expectations that they might have along the way. So some of the key requirements for the pipeline beyond just the high-level uh, collaborative and evaluation pieces that we were going after was they, they wanted to handle both static and streaming imagery. Uh, so they wanted to be able to take existing training sets that they had, imagery training sets, and upload them. They also wanted us to be able to tap into streaming sources where possible and pull those in. They, they also were very concerned about how scalable and robust and flexible it is. That's probably stating the obvious, but in our physical environments, this is oftentimes something that takes a lot of pain and effort, whereas you know, with AWS or an AWS-like environment, this was less of a concern for us. Uh, they want it to be easily deployed and maintained. Uh, and this is an ongoing issue that we always encounter, both, again, internally and for other environments. So one of the we are starting to adopt DevOps or DevOps-like processes, but I feel, and Ralph and I feel like we're a little behind there. Uh, we're really trying to dramatically improve that part, but it is something that we still struggle with. Um, and then they wanted it extensible. And by extensible, I mean they wanted to be able to add, change, modify, update the image classification instantiations that they had out in this environment so that they could quickly assess and reevaluate how effective or non-effective they were. And then lastly, we, were always, we always kind of had an eye, or they wanted us to have an eye on ways that we could leverage this approach or this effort to improve collaboration. So this, is a high, this uh, image is a high-level depiction of the actual pipeline itself. Uh, and we actually had an intermix of AWS services and then technologies that we are comfortable with and use a lot. Uh, and so what you see here is, of course, that intermix between 
AWS offerings, and then things like Apache NiFi, Elasticsearch, and TensorFlow Serving, which is actually what was being used for the image classification piece. And when we, when we went through this process with them of trying to establish this, part of the, part of the interactions and breakdowns of what we were building uh, was, was it a good example of where we were, I wouldn't again say maybe getting pushback, but we were getting questioned about why we were leveraging so many AWS services instead of using uh, things like Kafka or Hadoop or uh, relational databases. And our main push was that it, when we, we could easily introduce those things, and those are very powerful technologies, but it, it would incorporate or include the administrative overhead and some of the other frustrations that we typically have just simply because we aren't staffed appropriately. And so when we, when we went about this effort with our researchers, we kind of broke the, we broke the build out into two different parts. Uh, so we had the left side of the diagram, which is where the engineers came in and built the processing and ingest pipelines, uh, and, and then also where we were, how, we were, how and where we were storing both the imagery and the metadata. And then on the right side is where our researchers came in, and they were heavily involved with building out the actual TensorFlow instantiations along with some of the integration points between NiFi and Elasticsearch. Now, our engineers did get involved and were involved with them on some of these pieces so that we could do things like Dockerize our TensorFlow instantiations, refactor, refine some of the NiFi integrations, and then work through some of the, the Elasticsearch index and mappings and things like that. So as I mentioned, Ralph and I are going to walk through each one of these components and kind of and actually how they fit into the mix or how they fit into this pipeline. And so the first piece here is, is Apache NiFi. We use Apache NiFi heavily at the lab uh, across a wide range of domains and problem spaces. Uh, and we use it just for a lot of the flexibility and ease of use that it has, along with some of the nice out-of-the-box things that it, that it comes with, um, one of those being this visual component, which allows us to prototype pipelines and demonstrate them to analysts and managers where it would maybe otherwise be difficult to, to show or highlight to them how we're going to be processing this data. So a little bit about NiFi. So uh, Apache NiFi was actually developed by the NSA about 10 years ago. Uh, and it's been, of course, then battle tested over that time and now has since been open sourced. Um, we started using it, I think, around the .2 version, something like that. We started using it pretty early on. And now it's actually used quite heavily at the lab. Uh, and we want to just highlight a few uh, pieces or, or functions about NIFA that we appreciate and leverage a lot, which is, of course, the process and distribution of data. Message routing and distribution is phenomenal. Um, the ETL piece is great. Like, it, with, with NIFI, we don't have to go through a lot of the building or creating of boilerplate code that you would often do in, sort, in an ETL pipeline. Um, retrieving, transforming, augmenting. Storing all those things really comes out of the box and is really easy to, to use. Um, and then the ease of installation setup and then actually just building things out is, is great. Uh, it really does open uh, the technology to outside of our engineers and researchers. A lot of our analysts and testers and things use it as well just because it makes their life easier. Uh, and then some of the just out-of-the-box functionality that it comes with it, like back pressuring and queuing, is great, especially in our internal environments where we have uh, some issues with stability and uptimes of some of our downstream systems. Uh, and then lastly, the, the visual component is great. It really is a powerful uh, piece to have, or I guess um, aspect to have, where you can see what's going on, how much data is being processed, where it's being backed up, and what other issues you are actually observing in, in the flow. Now, this is, a, this is a little snippet from the ingest portion of the pipeline. Uh, so as I mentioned, NiFi is one of the preliminary pieces in our image classification pipeline. 
And what you see here is, is a few things. You see three what are called processors, uh, those processors being consume Kafka, put SNS, uh, and image cache filter. Now, consume Kafka and put SNS are actually out-of-the-box processors. Uh, there's literally, I think, hundreds now that come with the platform, uh, a lot of which are things like AWS service connections um, or processors, uh, RDSs, relational databases, message queues, file systems, all those things. So there's a really robust suite of processors that you can simply just drop on the flow and start using. Um, the image cache filter is actually one that we custom built. So we will oftentimes build custom processors depending on how complex the flows would be if we used out of the box one and or if we need uh, specific logic that's, that's better suited for us to build a, a custom one. The other things that you see on here are connectors. And those are the arrows that are actually connecting the processors to themselves. Uh, and what those are used for, those are actually used for the data routing and also the queuing. So if there is an issue with a downstream component where it gets hung up or it's not available or simply the flow is getting backed up, the messages will back up on these queues. And then just some, uh, some tuning tips that we've observed or encountered, or at least these are kind of our go-to when we deploy NIFI out on AWS. So we typically use the C4 or M4 EC2 instances. They, they seem to meet our workloads pretty well. Um, for scaling, we will oftentimes go vertical, uh, meaning we will just scale up the EC2 instance. Uh, NiFi does have clustering, but um, oftentimes we don't really need it. And as I mentioned, a lot of our use cases don't require 24, 24 by 7 or always up. We can, we can sustain some downtimes typically. Uh, and then we try to keep the, the CPU, load, CPU load around 50 to 60%. We found that on EC2s, at least, this is kind of the sweet spot. You know, on our physical instantiations, we can go higher than that. But when we do that out on AWS, we've encountered, at least for previous versions of NiFi, some issues. Uh, and then we will disable and tweak some of the, the features or settings. Uh, one of those settings we often tweak is the provenance piece. We don't usually use it. And if you turn it or change it to volatile, it dramatically improves your processing uh, power or the amount of messages you can process. And then we typically use SSDs to back the queues. Um, just for performance reasons. Um, that seems to work well. And then we always go back to the NiFi best practices because they're constantly evolving, evolving and changing that piece. And so then this is, uh, this is just a basic or, or generic uh, uh, example of the actual NiFi portion of this flow where we were consuming references to images uh, in the consume Kafka processor where we're grabbing messages off the topic. Um, we were applying custom filters in our uh, image cache filter processor and then creating SNS payloads so that it could be distributed downstream and further processed. Uh, and so with that, I'm going to hand it over to Ralph, and he's going to continue to walk through the pipeline. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as Mike said, um, just to review quickly, so we, we bring the data in with Apache NiFi, um, and then we're filtering. In this use case, we're only interested in koala bears. We just want to know about koala bears. So we're filtering out the koala bears, putting those JSON messages onto SNS, uh, and that and going on with our flow. Um, why are we using SNS? Uh, because we're using Lambda, and we need something to automatically um, uh, trigger that Lambda function. And there's a variety of, um, of services you can use to do that. SNS that fit in really well with our existing uh, flows that we uh, have already. We do a lot with um, message queuing and uh, whatnot, so this fit in well. Uh, another approach we could have taken was a Dynamo um, DB uh, event, uh, inserting the record there and, done, and, and did it that way. That would have worked as well, but this just seemed to fit in a little better with uh, uh, our other flows as well. So 
What's an SNS message look like? Well, a lot of this is just boilerplate, but we care about that little green part there where, um, as Mike mentioned, we're fil filtering just on koala bears. So that's what that payload looks like, and this, was, this is ultimately what's going to get passed on to the, to the Lambda function. Um, now moving on to Lambda. So as we make our progression through this flow, uh, so why Lambda? And uh, uh, why are we using this? Why aren't we using Apache Nifry for that? Um, that, that's a great question. So before this, we had um, pretty much used NiFi. We would take, uh, we'd set up NiFi and EC2 and, and things worked well. Um, also, we were concerned about uh, vendor lock-in, as Mike uh, mentioned as well. We didn't want to do anything that was going to corner us into only using AWS. It would be something that we couldn't uh, put in a different environment or use different services with. And so we were a little cautious with that. Um, but this is a specific use case where the NiFi approach wasn't going to work. Um, simply, uh, we did a bake-off between NiFi and, um, uh, and Lambda, um, and hands down, Lambda um, knocked it out of the park. Uh, one of the first things we observed, and it wasn't that NiFi couldn't handle it, it was uh, due to the nature of the use case where we're downloading images of unknown size and then those need to be in memory and then they need to be written out and whatnot. Um, it would, we just would have needed so many instances of NiFi to handle it. Um, it was beyond what we were willing to really take on. And this goes back to some of the points that Mike made about uh, that operational overhead and, and the support and whatnot. We're just not in that business of operationally supporting large clusters of, of infrastructure. And so um, with that, one of the first things we noticed with Lambda uh, when we were testing this is um, you, know, you hook that up to Kafka. And if you're familiar with Kafka, you get an offset. And if you haven't hooked up to your Kafka topic in a while, then you have a backlog if data is still being written to it. So uh, with the Lambda approach, you know you get this backlog of data, and uh, immediately Lambda is able to spin up all the instances required to then help get you through that backload uh, backlog, and that was really helpful. While with the with the EC2 approach, we were limited by the number of EC2 instances we had and the in the volume that that could handle, and so. Um, right off the bat, that was uh, just uh, a great, great thing to see. Uh, and then um, in this case here, uh, it, it, Lambda was considerably less expensive as well. So to be clear, you know, cost isn't the only thing we take uh, into account. If it's not just a dollar figure there, even if uh, Lambda was uh, more expensive than the EC2 approach, we may have uh, still gone with it uh, just because of that operational component that we, uh, uh, that we keep talking about there. So. Um, Again, this, is, this was a, a, a real, I think, um, uh, a fundamental shift in our thinking when we went with Lambda rather than NiFi. It wasn't that we didn't want to go serverless. We were excited to do it. We had been playing with the technologies. We just didn't have that use case to justify it. And this finally gave us that use case to just go out and do it. So moving on from there, uh, so what's our Lambda function doing? It, uh, well, we get, a, we get the notification. Um, we pull out the image URL. We go ahead and download that image from the internet. Uh, well, first we do check to see if we already have it, and then uh, we convert and uh, strip the, convert the image to JPEG, strip out any EXIF data or header data that might be in the image, and then we write that metadata to Amazon uh, to DynamoDB. Excuse me. Um, we write the image to uh, S3, and then write a notification to SQS. And I'm just going to walk through these each of these really quick, just to discuss why we uh, chose those particular technologies. Excuse me. Um, so with uh, Dynamo, uh, it's a NoSQL database. Uh, I know it's more than that, but for us, that's what we're using it for internally. Uh, we also use Cassandra and HBase. We're familiar with the technology, and this worked really well for the throughput that we needed. 
And because the record is simply just a hashed URL for the key uh, and then a bunch of metadata, and it's really fast for lookups, it can handle the throughput, it worked, it worked well. S3, um, we use S3 more and more. It's really become our go-to storage infrastructure and really helps complement our internal Hadoop infrastructure as well. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few slides. Um, but uh, S3, with all the built-in capability with events and um, encryption and versioning and replication and multi-region support, um, it's hard to compete with that. And we leverage that more and more. In fact, we even will use S3 as a... Um, Rather than using a message queue at times or whatnot, we're, we're, we're just learning, you know, do we really need um, the uptime or the capability of a queue? Can we use something like S3 instead? And um, we're trying to use it and abuse it in every way we can. And uh, we're, we have had a lot of luck with, a lot of success with S3. So, um, and then finally, SQS, and that's where the notification is going to the researchers to let them know that a new image has been downloaded and it's ready for them to, to look at. Um, and again, back to the comment with SNS, this just fits in with our, uh, our other flows. We have a lot of data flows out there, uh, and they're all, we have a messaging backbone in most of them where uh, some kind of messaging queue system is either handling notifications or the payload. We've leaned a lot on Kafka in the past. We had significant amount of Kafka infrastructure that we used, um, but more and more we're, we've just been moving away from that, uh, just don't have the, the, the bandwidth to, to, to support all that. So with that, oh. Went to hit the space bar. I don't need to do that. Okay. All right. So here's just a little bit of a Lambda code example, just a, a snippet of code. Don't try to compile this. It won't work. Right? So it's just an excerpt um, pulling out the, the parts that are important there. So um, it's, just, it's just Java. And in this case, we're not even uh, implementing a, a Lambda interface. Uh, you just have to make sure you have the right method signature, which we do, and we're w expecting an SNS event. Um, and so we, you know, we grab that message from the SNS event, and, and it's JSON, and then we parse that out. We usually use something like Google JSON or Jackson XML uh, and their uh, JSON, uh, JSON library to, uh, to do that. Uh, once we have the uh, image URL, we download the image and then write it back out. We're using the image.io uh, API. This is just pure Java. That's in the Java X package, if you're familiar with that. Um, the way we're writing that out, um, uh, as a JPEG, it doesn't include any of the metadata or EXIF header data, so it, we get a sanitized image then on the other end, which is nice. From there, we go ahead and put that object into S3. Um, we add a record to Dynamo with the hashed um, URL, and then finally send a notification on to the researchers to let them know that uh, a, a new image is ready. Um, a quick note, if you're wondering why were you doing SQS here, uh, rather than um, a uh, S3 uh, event. It's because at the time when we originally designed this and wrote it, because of our environment with different researchers and the buckets and whatnot, it just, we wanted that granular control. And so we decided we would just write that message ourselves. Um, but we do use S3 events quite a bit. And, and, um, and now how, as things we have progressed, we could go back and actually just replace this with, uh, remove that code and replace it with an S3 event, but it works, so. Just let it chug along. Okay, now we're back to our roadmap and our big overview here, talking about collaboration, uh, as Mike was talking about. So this really was uh, great how these three technologies came together to, to provide this collaborative environment for us between us, the engineering, the researchers, and very loosely coupled. Um, they get a notification that a new image is available. They can fetch the metadata from Dynamo and then grab the, the image itself from uh, S3. Uh, they are using Apache NiFi as well. Uh, Mike talked about NiFi. Pretty much anywhere data is going in and out of our system, there's going to be a NiFi there. We use it quite a bit. 
And with the built-in AWS capability, that makes it uh, very easy to use. Um, and also, it's helped a lot with any fears around vendor lock-in, which uh, I think are really have been unfounded for us, at least. We have no, we've had no concerns with that. Uh, NiFi has definitely helped with that, because we can read from a Kafka topic as quickly and as easily as we can do from an SNS queue. So um, the message, we, they grab that, um, uh, that notification, the image. They pass it off to TensorFlow Serving. Uh, that classification information comes back where they write it to Elasticsearch, um, and then there's a research UI that's been put on top of this for analysts to look at it and evaluate, and then have that iterative cycle where they can tweak the models and whatnot and uh, continue to work on that, that classification work. So, and Elasticsearch has also been a great collaboration point for us as well. Okay, so some lessons learned. Um, uh, this, this is a great success story for us because not only is it a pretty sophisticated pipeline and it's doing a lot, um, but it, the, the overhead has, the operational overhead has been greatly minimized. Um, and that's, and again, we keep talking about that. Uh, it's fantastic for scaling. In this use case, Lambda was the obvious choice. Um, it's very performant when the functions are loaded or warm. Uh, if you're not familiar with Lambda, if they're cold, you initially hit them. They have to be loaded in, into memory, and there can be a little bit of a hit. If you're not, if you're not uh, used to that, then you will, uh, you'll wonder, why is my function running so slow? So just know once it gets in memory and it's warmed up, it, it, runs, it runs really fast, really well. Just straight Java, that's all we're using. Uh, two key situations where we're leaning on Lambda, um, the, the low-cost pilot efforts and the high-volume throughput. I have another slide on this to talk a little bit more, more about, excuse me, a little bit more about that. And then uh, we already talked about the cold store. It's, it starts um, the legacy code versus new development. This really has to do with the jar size. So when we build our um, Lambda functions, we use Maven, and then we take advantage of the Shade plugin to both build our Uber jar and then also minimize the dependencies that get included to only those that are required. We ran into a use case, another situation on another flow where um, uh, just we were trying to use some existing uh, NLP libraries and nat natural language processing to enrich some text data, and they were just way too large as an Uber jar, so we had to then go back and just really pull them apart, pull out the features we wanted. Um, then, and also, I guess on that use case as well, that'd be a case where Lambda didn't work because the memory requirements for some of these NLP functions were significant, and then that kind of put that cost over the edge of what we, where we wanted to go. Um, a quick note on SNS. Uh, this, again, is from a different use case, that 256K uh, limit on the message size. We did run into a case where we were writing uh, the payload to S SNS, and like 98% of the time, the, the size was fine. But then we hit this edge case unexpectedly where some of the messages were over 256K. We were scratching our head, you know, do we just drop them on the floor? Like, what do we do with these? Because we're using SNS so we don't have to worry about these types of things. And it turned out the solution was really uh, quite simple for us. Using Apache NiFi, we could detect the size of the payload uh, and then from there uh, route the message to S3. And rather than putting the payload in SNS, just put a pointer to the message in SNS, and then tweaking the Lambda function to know to look um, uh, in S3 instead of uh, in, in the payload to be able to you know, to determine that was, was simple. Um, and then just one last little tip that's helped for us is combine your Lambda function, combine your code into one Lambda function. Um, so we were at one point trying to make them really granular and have you know, all these uh, well-defined, loosely coupled uh, functions, but then you get charged per function call. So um, the more you can kind of pack into a single function call, 
um, that could be more cost effective, even if it, 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 if it grates against your software engineering design best practices and uh, design patterns, which it does on mine, but nonetheless, sometimes you just have to do that. So, uh, Okay, so when do we go with EC2-based solution and when do we go with Lambda? So I'm just gonna walk through this slide really quickly here. Um, so first, let me have a caveat. Let me just say this caveat. We have pre-purchased um, uh, EC2 reserved instances. So sometimes that does play into whether or not we would go with EC2 or Lambda because we don't wanna have EC2 instances laying around that are unused. So even if we would like to use Lambda, uh, sometimes we just go with what we've uh, pre-purchased. So with that, you know, uh, starting with uh, instance count, uh, EC2 instance count cost as a function of instance count. You know, as you go right to left there, from left to right, as we increase uh, the number of instances, the cost goes up accordingly. Um, performance then is also, you know, a function of CPU count. You add more CPUs, take advantage of those. Your performance increases. But for us, uh, the perceived operational overhead really go, grows exponentially. Um, I, that should have been more of a proper parabola, really, uh, of that support that's required to, to really manage these systems. This again comes back to that uh, operational component uh, at the lab that we uh, are trying to avoid. And um, so, and I put perceived because you have the hard numbers, you know, so-and-so spent so many hours, you know, to, to, uh, to work on something, but then you have that intangible factor, maybe we don't talk about all that much, that stress, like you know you have this cluster running out there, you know this experiment's running, it's gonna be running all weekend long, it's a three-day weekend, it's in the back of your mind, should you go check it, I don't wanna check my email, you know, and so those little things where, uh, being that we're, you know, we're not an operational shop, you know, um, um, the the uh, ability to then kind of let that go and uh, ha has been uh, uh, has just been great, been really helpful. Um, so the lambda-based solution, you know, cost and, and performance are hand in hand. Uh, you pay for what you use, but then that operational support is really a constant. So you have that n initial hit in the beginning where you do development and the debugging um, and the uh, uh, the testing and you got to get everything tweaked and the parameters, but then after that um, there's really not, not much to it and it's, it's, it doesn't matter if there's one function running or a thousand, um, it's on AWS. I mean, they're the ones who are supporting this infrastructure so you don't really uh, have to worry about it, um, which is, that's just been great and that's been really that, that sweet spot for us that uh, we've been uh, taking advantage of really like that. Uh, on the note of the Lambda development cycle, you know, one of the things just that we've run into um, is just making sure that your Lambda functions are really well tested before you deploy them because you don't have a lot of visibility into the Lambda environment. And so uh, oftentimes a, a Lambda function will fail for some reason. It can be really hard to figure out why it failed. Uh, and so making sure, you, you know, you really unit test your code, really harden your code uh, locally on your system prior to deploying it to uh, Lambda uh, will help you out a lot. Okay, exploring other serverless technologies. This is just a quick, uh, uh, quick thing on Amazon Athena. We've been using Athena more and more in the last few months. Um, it's really become a, a great way for us to explore data in Amazon S3. As I said earlier, um, that's become our landing spot for new data sources as they come in. And we get sample data, you know, we get data from sensors. The lab does a lot of different research in a lot of different areas. And uh, we get them, you know, from uh, sponsors or government customers and whatnot. So having um, something like uh, Athena that we've been using more to explore that data 
uh, run, you know, e even if it's just simple queries, aggregation, summaries, um, correlating the data with other data sources, extraction, doing data extractions uh, for some time frame. These are all the things that we've uh, been using Athena for, and it really complements our internal Hadoop cluster. So prior to this, we would, data would come, even if we ingested the data out on AWS, we would still bring it into our internal Hadoop cluster so analysts could look at it and researchers could run jobs and functions against it. And we still do that. We still have our internal uh, infrastructure, but we, we can be a lot more strategic about what data we bring in now. We don't bring in, you know, the everything, the kitchen sink. Um, we can be more strategic about that or bring in just maybe like, you know, just a, a, a subset of the data uh, or whatnot. Um, if you're familiar with Hive and Hadoop, you will be right at home with Athena. Um, if you're familiar with SQL, it won't take you long at all to, to get up to speed on Athena and get um, going on it. You just create a simple schema, um, point it to an S3 directory, and if it's one of the supported data types, it um, uh, doesn't matter if the data is zipped up or, or, or not. Um, well, it does depend on the zip type. It needs to be a gzip or one of the supported zip types. But anyway, it can, uh, it, it, you know, just like Hadoop, if you're familiar with Hadoop, it just magically queries your data. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so we were using, you know, we were writing our own schemas for a while, and then we found AWS Glue, and with their crawlers, and being able to point those to an S3 directory and have it extract out a schema for us, for their supported data types, has been, has been great. We do a lot, of, a lot of work with JSON, so uh, it handles JSON pretty well. Uh, we, um, we do have a little bit of X, XML data. That hasn't, the web crawlers don't like that as much, so we still have to kind of do that one by hand, but um, it's been, uh, it's, it's, more and more we're, we're leaning on these technologies, so. All right, with that, I'm gonna hand it off back to Mike, and he's gonna talk about moving forward with serverless at the lab and uh, uh, helping enable research. Thanks, Ralph. So, uh, we've been talking a lot about the efforts that we're putting into or um, the collaborations we're trying to have with our researchers and constantly trying to look at how we can improve these research environments and these environments that we can position the researchers so that they can do this novel, new, innovative work, and then give it a, a path forward if there is a case where we have something that we want to transition uh, or, or try to deploy in another space. Uh, and so what I want to highlight here is I want to at least highlight some of the things that we're doing. This is a new effort that we're working on, and, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to build out a basic data lake. Uh, and that maybe seems straightforward to some of you in the room, but one of the key challenges that our researchers face is oftentimes access to data. Uh, it really is, of course, difficult for them to build some of these capabilities uh, if they don't have access to the data that they need to work through some of these problems. Uh, and so some of the things that we're doing is, of course, trying to load up this environment with data, but then we're also trying to get people to additionally tag uh, metadata to these data sources so that one, you know what the source is, two, you maybe have some better understanding of what's in there, so things like known events or known occurrences of things, so if you're working, of course, with things like cyber data or social media data or whatever the case may be, you have some insight into what's available to you as a researcher and what events and things you have, so that if you were wanting to vet one of your capabilities to so something like an algorithm against this data, you have a little bit, you have more insight into what's there and, and a process for being able to do that. Some of the other things that we've done is uh, we're building out uh, mechanisms for them to actually do things like start, stop, replay this data so that they can wire up their algorithms to it and use that as a method to do this evaluation or, or vetting process. Uh, some of the other key pieces here, though, are that not only is it giving them more ability to do that and having our engineers in the mix, it's also give, making it easier for our SMEs, like our subject matter experts or our domain experts, whether they're at the lab or somewhere else, to be able to take a look at these capabilities and help us really shape them. 
Uh, we're, all, we're always trying to improve this research engineering collaboration, but we're also trying to make it easier to bring in some of our the SMEs and domain experts, like I mentioned, so that they can help us shape these problems up front. That's also one of the other challenges we have. And then, of course, as Ralph mentioned, we're leveraging other uh, technologies out in AWS, things like Athena and Glue, to additionally augment that environment and provide researchers with other capabilities or tools so that they can do things like data exploration, analysis, and extraction. Uh, and then leverage things like glue for like the schema generation and things like that, as Ralph mentioned. And then the other part to this is because of the way we're building it and how we're going about it, uh, this should make any capabilities that we build more suitable or hopefully easier to transition in other places. And a good example of this is uh, one of our researchers, re researchers was recently, wor recently working on an anomaly detection algorithm, uh, and they built it in MATLAB. And one of the things that we did then is we paired them with one of our engineers. They worked together. They ported it to Java. And then we helped them actually put both a Spring Boot and Lambda wrapper around it so that they could deploy it out in this environment. And then we could reuse that as a mechanism to see if this environment would support our ability to integrate their algorithm to some of the data sources that we had available. And it worked really well. Uh, the outcome of that was obviously initially good, and then the other part to it is that now they have a mechanism and a pattern, other researchers as well, to see how we ported and distributed algorithms that they built out into this space and leveraged that as a way to, to move their, or hopefully more effectively progress their things forward and or see what types of things they knew, need to do to improve them along the way. Uh, so, and then lastly, Ralph and I wanted to go through a few lessons learned that we've had along the way. Uh, both in terms of trying to be more or focus more on a cloud-first uh, environment and then really focusing on the use of things like serverless technologies that AWS provides. Uh, so as I mentioned, we, we really are leaning more and more on it, serverless technologies, uh, a lot of which is the resource constraints and frustrations that we've had, both with physical hardware and people. Uh, a lot of our government customers are now really asking us for this, too. They really want us to build things where appropriate or where we can uh, using those technologies because they have a lot of the same challenges that we do. Uh, they, they have challenges with getting the physical resources and staff to maintain and, and keep the upkeep of the capabilities that get deployed and developed within their space. Uh, and then we wanted to make it um, easier for our engineers and, and researchers, of course, to do this collaboration, but also to establish these, these patterns or blueprints, if you will, uh, and processes so that we can streamline our approaches to these efforts. Uh, in addition, you know, we, we want to focus on solving problems, like Mike said. So, um, you know, in the use case we went through, the, our goal was not just to create a cool data flow or have a lot of infrastructure. It was really to enable research with, um, uh, so they could do image classification and work through those models and whatnot. And so AWS more and more allows us to do that. It allows us to lean to, to really focus on the capabilities we're trying to provide rather than the actual than rather than maintaining a ton of infrastructure. Um, uh, and again, you know, leveraging the AWS environment uh, provides more. And I mean, the number of tools is almost, it, it's, it's mind-numbing. I don't know how much you've been on AWS. Every time you go out there, there's like a new tool. Uh, and just being able to leverage all those new services and, and whatnot has been, has been really helpful. Uh, we've been really pleased with the performance. Uh, uh, now that we're familiar with all these services, we can use them to... Um, cobble together solutions quickly, uh, even if it's just to kind of test a test an idea or a scenario or an experiment or pilot an effort. Um, so brute force, if you will, uh, our way through an effort to see if it works, and then go back and refine it from there. Just being able to tie these services together. Um, 
And then you have to find what's most cost effective for your use cases. So every environment's different, every problem is different, every company and organization is different. So you gotta figure out what works, when it's gonna be economical and when it's gonna work well for you and when, it, when it's not. So we talked about a couple cases where, you know, one where it was and one where it wasn't. Um, and for us, definitely that operational support element is a big deal and so is the scaling. So those are the two spots where uh, for us, if, if, if there's gonna be a lot of operational support required or we have massive scaling requirement, Lambda is gonna be a really, really good choice for us. Um, our go-to stack uh, internally is um, these technologies listed here. We, we do, of course, use others. We use, um, we didn't mention RDS, but we do use RDS. In fact, that uh, the diagram where the data Lambda is writing to, um, is there like an echo? Or is it just me? No, okay. Um, uh, the, 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 the diagram where the data is being written to Lambda, we've also used that, we've also used RDS, Aurora, with that, and that worked as well. It was a different, different environment. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, some other technologies, you know, like Elasticsearch um, and whatnot, you know, just these are, these, given a problem, we'll go to these. Also, we use, uh, because we're Java shop, you know, we use Spring quite a bit, Spring Boot, to set up uh, uh, web services and whatnot, a lot of REST services. Um, we do as well. Um, also, take advantage of the built-in events and triggers that are on some of the services like S3 or Dynamo. Um, uh, it's like bu it's built-in capability that you're getting, you know, almost for free. Um, you know, imagine if you will, you know, writing code to you know watch a directory, and if you get a new file, you got to send a notification. You know, that event-driven programming model. Well, you get that built-in with with um, uh, with AWS and some of their services. So take advantage of that. Um, and then um, we find ourselves abandoning a lot of our favorite technologies in favor of uh, AWS because um, just because of the simplicity in using them. So, uh, like we were uh, we were big users of Kafka for a long time, but just again that operational support of a Kafka cluster and the zookeepers and, and whatnot. And um, so with back to DiFi, you know, NiFi we find, you know, site to site, uh, NiFi has a, a setting, nice site to site that you can figure where one NiFi can talk to another. If, if, um, if that's all that we're doing, that works really well. Um, and we don't even need a messaging backbone in there um, or we'll use SQS instead. Um, Kafka is really great when you've got a, a high volume and you have a lot of um, uh, uh, cl different clients wanting to pull off that same topic. Um, so that's still a use case that we, we use that for. Um, yeah. yeah, and so, and then uh, we, we're trying to request people actually change the way that they do things where possible. Uh, a good example of that is, of course, this collaboration effort between our researchers and engineers and having them do things like, hey, if you're working on an effort, uh, you're working on a capability, uh, and you're collecting data along the way, uh, try to apply approaches, pr even if they're basic best practices and things like this data lake, uh, where you are storing maybe multiple copies of the data so that we can have the raw enriched, uh, maybe even more copies than that, just, just simply so that we can replay data, reproduce it if we find issues. And again, this environment really supports that. It's pretty cheap to do that. It's really cheap for us to have lots of copies of things so that we can get back to the raw if we need to. Uh, and then the other thing is just having them do things like tag and add events and other metadata and identify things like time frames so that if another researcher is to come in or wants to come in, they can. It makes that a lot easier for them to come into this environment and actually vet or check their things out, or maybe even augment or improve upon a pre-existing capability. Uh, and then lastly is just adding other functionality that really helps them or maybe would help others this like start, stop, replay, that kind of stuff. 
So, you know, with that, we, we really wanted to thank everybody for the opportunity um, and being able to speak to you here. Ralph and I care a great deal about the missions and the problem spaces that we support for our government customers. Uh, and the AWS environment has really made a big difference for us. Um, it's really changed our life, if you will, uh, in our ability to approach some of the capabilities we have, uh, and also really allows us to focus on the problems at hand. Really, really made a huge difference for us. Uh, and so with that, we want to open it. Uh, we have a few more minutes here if, if anybody has any questions.